Okay, if you have a Bible, we'll be on page 49 and following. We'll be in Exodus chapters 7 through 11. Nothing like preaching through the plagues on Mother's Day. Uh, that should be a good fit. Okay, let me start by saying this. Sometimes in life, you can have two people that go through the same exact event and yet come out with two entirely different experiences, right? Two people can go through the same thing, witness the same thing, experience the same thing, and yet the outcome, their experience of that same thing can be worlds apart, very, very different. Let me give you an example. It can happen sometimes with a test, right? I remember some years back, Asha, my younger sister, was telling me that in her fourth year at USP when she was studying physical therapy, at the end of the fourth year, there's this exam that if you pass that exam, you keep going in the program. If you fail that exam, no matter how good your grades have been, no matter how good you've done to that part, that, to that point, no matter how hard you've tried, you're done. They either kick you out or you start all over again. So you can imagine the pressure of that. I remember I was at a different state at the time, but I remember her calling me when she went into the building, opened her mailbox, and saw that she had passed. And you can imagine, smile from ear to ear, just ecstatic. And I remember her telling me that as she walked out of the building, she saw another girl, this one weeping, being consoled by her father, one of her classmates, and she didn't need to go over and ask what had happened. She knew, right? They had gone through the same exact experience, sat down in the same room, taken the same test, answered the same questions, and yet they came out with two entirely different experiences. One was in the ecstasy of joy. One was in the agony of sorrow and defeat, right? It happens with tests all the time. It can happen with sports, Today, there will be NBA playoff basketball. There'll also be NHL, which I'm mentioning for Nate, but nobody cares about the NHL, <laughs> right? But there'll be playoff sports, right? Two teams and all their fans in different states will go into a stadium. They'll watch the same event. The guys will run down the same court or figure skate down the same rink, right? <laughs> He'll get me back for that one. Um, Right? They'll, they'll feel the same sweat on their brow. They'll hear the same roar of the crowd. But by the end of this day, one team, one set of players will know playoff sports and the joy of victory. And the other will have gone through the same exact experience and event and come through it in the agony of defeat. It can happen all the time. You can go through the same event in life, experience the same kind of things, and yet come out with two entirely different experiences. In Exodus chapter 7 through 11, we're covering four chapters today, you're going to find that the people of Israel and the people of Egypt go through the same event. In a sense, they're sitting in the same classroom under the same teacher. They're going to arrive at the same conclusion. They're going to learn the same truth, but they're going to do that in two entirely different ways. They will witness the same things. They'll experience the same things. They'll see the same things. And yet how they arrive at the conclusion will be two entirely different experiences. In chapter 7 through 11, you have the narrative of the 10 plagues. In these four chapters, God is going to literally light up Egypt with 10 signs and wonders. 10 times he will essentially flex his muscles in the land and they will all, all the people will arrive at the same conclusion. There is no one who is Lord but God. There is no God but Yahweh. But they will arrive at that conclusion in two very different ways. Because Egypt 
will know that the Lord is God, but they will come to know that in judgment. Israel will come to know that the Lord is God, but they will come to know that in salvation. They will both come to learn that the Lord is God. There is no other. But one will learn that through great acts of judgment. The other at the same time will learn that through great acts of salvation. And what we'll come away with today is that what was true for them then is true for us right now. And that is that all of us, all of you sitting in this room, please hear me, every single one of you sitting in this room will come to know that there is one Lord and there is no other. Every person in our church who's associated here, every person in our city, every person in our state, every person in our country, every person on the planet who has ever lived, who will ever live, will all arrive at the same truth. There is one God and there is no other. But they will arrive that truth in two different ways. You will either come to know the Lord in his salvation or you will come to know the Lord in his judgment. You will know the Lord. You will know that there is no other. The only question is, how will you come to that conclusion? Will you arrive there in his salvation, or will you arrive there in his judgment? Let me pray for a moment, and then we will consider today Exodus 7 through 11. Our God, we give you thanks again for this time in your word. We offer this prayer not as rote or ritual, or something to sprinkle at the top, but to confess together our dependency upon the Holy Spirit for this time. We do not rely upon our flesh, flesh to preach or flesh to even hear. We ask in humility that the Spirit would enable both. I pray for the people here that with their own hearts, they would now pray, Lord, help me to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save my soul. Help me to trust your word above my own. Help me to trust your opinions above my own. Help me to submit my heart to hear whatever you would have me to hear. And I pray that your spirit would also accompany my preaching, that it would not be on giftings or talents or flesh, but it would be the proclamation of the word of God through the spirit of God to the glory of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. All right, chapter 7, you're on page 49. It kicks off with God having to convince Moses one more time, I need you to go to Pharaoh. I need you to go to Egypt. All right, Moses is this great hero that we all know about. It should be very encouraging to those of you that are reticent, to those of you that are slow to act, that Moses does not just spring into action. He's got to be convinced over and over and over again. In chapters 3 and 4, God calls him to this mission. He objects five different times. He finally yields to God. Chapter 5, he goes and does what God tells him to do. Everything turns out worse than it's ever been. So chapter 6, last week he says, God, I'm done. I cannot do this. So chapter 7 begins with God again convincing him, listen, Moses, everything is under control. I'm going to do a great work, and I need you to go. I need you to trust me. You go back to Pharaoh. And he tells Moses right from the outset, this is not going to happen in a moment. This is going to take some time. In verse 4 of chapter 7, he says this, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. 
So already in chapter 7, before the encounter between Pharaoh and Moses, before the 10 times where they will meet, God already in advance says, listen, Pharaoh's not going to hear you, but I am about to act. And here he says that they may know that I am the Lord. I want you to hear throughout the entire plagues narrative from chapter 7 through 11, the central thing God is trying to communicate is everyone must know that I am the Lord. That's what this is about. Nine times in these four chapters, he's going to say, I'm doing this so that everyone will know that I am the Lord. But already he gives you a preview that Egypt is going to come to know that through, he says, great acts of judgment. And Israel will come to know that, he says already, because I will bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. One will know God in his judgment. One will know him in his salvation. And so he promises that to Moses and he sends them off. And in chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, we find that Moses and Aaron listen to all that the Lord says. They obey his commands and they go. They go to Pharaoh just like God had told them to go. When they get there, Just as God had promised would happen, Pharaoh asked for a sign. In the Egyptian culture, miracles, signs, exhibitions of power, these were big things. There was a magician on every block in Egypt. And so if you were going to convince that culture that your God was a greater power, then you needed to accompany that word with some demonstration of power. If they were going to believe that Yahweh, the desert God that we had never heard about, was somehow greater than all the gods that we knew, then we need to see it with our eyes. And so Pharaoh begins this contest by asking for a sign. Perform a miracle for me, Moses. And so the first sign that he gives is a preview of what's to come in the following chapters. Aaron basically goes into the court. He drops his staff, and the staff turns into a serpent. Pharaoh looks to his magicians, and he says, we can do the same thing. They drop staffs, and they turn into serpents. And already you now have a preview of what's coming in the chapters ahead. If you remember back again to sixth grade history or whenever you studied Egyptian culture, if you remember the pictures of the pharaohs, they would have atop their headdress a cobra or a serpent. Right? That was the picture that of Egyptian royalty, Egyptian deity, Egyptian authority. And now the very symbol of Egyptian power is in Aaron's hand. He controls, he wields Egyptian power. And so it becomes a serpent. Pharaoh thinks we can match this. We can go up against this Yahweh God. And so their sticks turn into serpents. And then we're told in chapter 7, but Aaron's staff swallows the other two swallows the the serpents of Pharaoh. And that word swallow will not be said again in all of Exodus until you get to chapter 15 when it says, and the Egyptian army was swallowed by the sea. And so already you're given a preview. Pharaoh, if you're going to enter into the ring, if you really want to do this, I'm giving you an out. Let the people of Israel go so that they may serve me. But if you're going to step into this ring, this will not end until you and your people are swallowed up by Yahweh the Lord. But chapter 7 says this, verse 13, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Next week, we will consider what it means that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So put that to the side for one week. We'll talk through that next week. But for now, God calls this man to obey him, and Pharaoh responds by saying, no, I will not listen. 
And with that, in verse 13 and following, the text launches into the narrative of the ten plagues. If you remember back, if you've been with us into chapter 5, when Moses first shows up to Pharaoh, he says, listen, the God of the Hebrews has met me. He commands you, let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh's question, if you remember, is who is the Lord? Capital letters, L-O-R-D. And we said that's the proper name of God. So he's essentially saying, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Right? If you had said, Moses, if you had said Osiris or Ra or Horus, these are gods I know, these are gods I recognize, but why on earth would I let the entire labor force out of the country because you said Yahweh says to let them go? I do not know the Lord, he says, nor will I let the people go. And that's the question that the plagues are going to keep addressing. Pharaoh's own question, who is the Lord? And it's as if in chapters 7 through 11, God is going to say, you want to know who I am? Let me show you. Here's your education, Pharaoh, on who is the Lord, on who I am. And with that and with the plagues, God is about to convince and show all of Egypt who the Lord is. The plagues are like a Bible, Right? We read the Bible to know God. The plagues were that way for Egypt. They were supposed to see it and through it be revealed and understand who the Lord is. They were going to come to know who it is. Central to the plagues is the understanding that they are going to realize who the Lord is and that there is no other God but the Lord. Through the plagues, God is not only just going to educate them, not only going to judge them, he is also going to judge the pantheon of other gods in Egypt, right? The plagues are essentially a contest. They're a contest not just between Moses and Pharaoh, not even just between God and Pharaoh. They are a contest between God and the gods of Egypt. And God will not stop until he has shown that all the gods of, the Egypt, of Egypt are not, and he alone is. In Exodus 12, verse 12, you don't have to read it now, but he says this. When, when he's done with the last plague, he'll say, For I will pass through the land of Egypt, and then he'll say, And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Do you hear that? He's not judge, judging Pharaoh. He is executing judgment on all the false gods of Egypt through these plagues. So let me walk you through a few of them. We won't go through all ten. But the plagues start with a judgment on the waters, right? So Moses shows up in chapter 7 and says, let the people of Israel go that they may serve Yahweh. He says, no way. And God says, Moses, go outside, take your staff, stretch it out over the waters. And suddenly all the waters, the Nile River being first, turns into blood. These judgments on the land of Egypt will both start and end with the waters, right? This will start with the waters, it will end with the waters. And there's a bit of poetic justice in this, because it was Pharaoh himself who had made the rivers run red with the blood of Hebrew children, right? They, he was the one, and his ancestors were the ones who went throughout Egypt and took the Hebrew babies from their moms, threw them into the Nile to be swallowed, devoured by crocodiles, drowned by the river. And now those waters will run red run red with the judgment, run red with blood, and this will not stop till it is Egyptian blood that is filling the waters in the Red Sea. 
It starts and ends with the waters. And the Nile was this great source of life, of prosperity. Everything about Egypt was centered on the Nile. And it's the Nile itself that God strikes first. Showing to Pharaoh, this river is not your servant to do your bidding. This river and all the earth is my servant to do my bidding. I control even the Nile. And with the Nile was associated this Egyptian goddess called Happy. And so it's as if God first, right off the bat, goes and slaughters the first god and lets its blood run through the rivers. God is not just going after Pharaoh, not just going after Egypt. He is making sure everyone knows there is no God but the Lord. I am the Lord. There is no other. And for seven days, this river, the source of Egyptian life, runs red with the blood of death till it becomes a stench throughout all the land. The Egyptians had another goddess called Heket, whose depiction was that of a frog. And so guess what God does next? With his second plague, he goes after another god. And he says, you want to worship frogs? Here are so many frogs, your whole land is filled with them. He unleashes a plague of frogs. Listen to this, 8 verse 3 and 4. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses, into the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens, in your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. That's a plague, right? This is not cute little cuddly Kermit here or there. This is a plague of nasty frogs in every nook, in every cranny, everywhere, till they're hopping in your bed, till they're in your bedroom, on your bed, in your kneading bowls, in your ovens, everywhere. The Egyptians cannot take two steps without squashing Heket, right? He's everywhere. Shainu and I, I didn't ask her permission, we had a mouse in our apartment, right? And I don't know if you've had, you live in Philadelphia, you've had it too, I know you do, right? <laughs> So we had a mouse in our apartment. I tell you, that thing one day ran over my leg. All right? So you can imagine that. By the next day, I told Shaina, we need to move. Like, literally, we were like, we were thinking, you know, Hawaii needs a good church plant. We should move there. We were ready to, the thing was just, it, it I literally prayed for an east wind to come and take the frog, I mean, the, the mouse out. It just felt like a plague. Can you imagine the whole nation Frogs in every corner jumping into your bowls. You can't cook. You can't sleep. You can't stand. They're everywhere. God is not just going after Pharaoh. He's not just going after Egypt. He is assaulting all the other gods, putting down all the other competition till they realize there is no other Lord but God. Finally, Pharaoh himself goes to Moses and says, please beg Yahweh, whatever his name is, to make this stop. And, Pharaoh's, and Moses says, okay, and you'll know God's power, not just that he brings frogs, but that he'll end them, right? And so he prays, and, and the frogs literally just drop dead where they are till they have to pile the frogs into great heaps, and it says that as their bodies are rotting, just the stench of it fills the land. When God judges, he's not playing around. So the first two plagues come by way of the seas, but God is going to show Egypt, listen, I don't just play like your gods play. I don't just rule what your gods rule. I rule all the earth. And so with the third one, he tells Moses, now what I want you to do is go and strike the land. 
Strike the dust of the earth, verse 16 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, strike, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. With the next one, he'll send not only gnats, but swarms of flies so as to convince them, listen, I could send flies from the air. I can bring forth gnats from the ground. I can bring forth frogs and bloods from the sea. I am the Lord. There is no other God. And I rule over earth and sky and sea. And all that is belongs to me. I am the Lord, Pharaoh. There is no other one. So let my people go so that they may worship me. And over and over and over and over, for ten times, Pharaoh will harden his heart and say, no, I will not let them go. We could keep going through each one, but with each one, God is executing judgment on the land, on Pharaoh, and on its gods. He's destroying the competition, proving over and over again, there is no other God but me. Egypt had a god named Hathor. It was depicted as a cow. What do you know? There's a plague in which the livestock die. They go outside, they look down, and the cows are fallen over. Egypt had sky goddesses. And what do you know? From the sky, God sends forth hail till it destroys everything. Such giant hail that it says it broke apart trees, destroyed vegetation, destroyed the land. God says, your sky god, I control your sky god. And this goes and goes and goes till it culminates with the ninth plague. In the ninth one, Egypt had, has perhaps highest of all the gods, the, the great one above the whole pantheon, the sun god Ra. That was the god from which Pharaoh himself was believed to have been the incarnate version. And God goes after that one and says, your sun god is darkened. And for three days in the land, there's such darkness, it says they cannot see in front of them. No one got up out of their house. The entire land was covered with pitch darkness, as if the sun god Ra died in the sky and no longer burned. And no one could see anything. In fact, Exodus will say it was so dark you could feel it. The, the kind of darkness where you couldn't see what was in front of your nose. And God will not stop until with the 10th plague, he goes after Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh is supposed to be the indestructible, unbeatable power of all powers. And yet the seed of Pharaoh, the one that will ascend the throne after him in one night, the firstborn, including Pharaoh's own, is gone. And God is again and again over and over saying, if you want to enter this ring, I'm telling you, Pharaoh, this will not stop. In fact, I will pick you up only to knock you down again. And I will do that 10 times till you know that there is no one who is God but the Lord. He destroys the river. He devastates the land. He brings down judgment from the sky. And through these 10 great signs and 10 signs and wonders and 10 plagues, Egypt is to know that there is no other God but the Lord. Now, while all of that is happening, while Egypt is in school, in God's school learning these lessons, Israel is in school as well. And they are to learn the same exact truth. But their curriculum will look entirely different. 
they are to also arrive at the same exact truth. There is no God but the Lord. But they are to arrive at that truth entirely different. In, in one of the plagues, God says to, to Moses, this is for you and for your children so that your sons and daughters may know that I am the Lord. In another part, he says, this is for the whole world that the whole world may know that I am the Lord. And even as Egypt was learning this lesson, Israel was learning it also, but in an entirely different way, namely, that while Egypt learned this through judgment, Israel learned this through salvation. It was through this judgment that God was saving Israel. See, as the plagues were going out throughout the land, God over and over again began to make a distinction between his people and Egypt. There was a, a divide. L let me let you hear it from the text. In 8 verse 21, when it talks about the flies, this is what it says. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, hear this, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Swarms are going to come to Egypt, but not a single fly will enter the land of Goshen where my people live. In 9 verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Before the plague of the livestock come, Moses says, listen, God's going to bring about a distinction. Every one of your livestock is going to fall over dead. Not one of God's peoples will be touched. And Pharaoh even sends messengers to find out and learns that it's true. And still, he will not relent. Still, his heart remains hard. In verse 24, it says, There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Verse 26, Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. With the plague of darkness, listen to this. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. God is teaching the same lesson, but when swarms of flies come to Egypt, not a single fly buzzes over to Israel. When the livestock drop dead in Egypt, not a single cow, not a single beast drops in Israel. When hail crashes down, destroys everything in Egypt, not a single stone, not the tiniest pebble falls in Israel. When darkness covers the land so that they cannot see one another, they don't rise. Israel is lit up like the noonday sun. Finally, when the plague of the firstborn comes and the Egyptian homes are weeping over their lost sons, the sons of 
Israel are being gathered as they have a meal together and celebrate the salvation of the Lord. Nine times in four chapters, God will say, by these plagues, you will know that I am the Lord and there is no other. And Egypt would learn that lesson through great acts of judgment and Israel would learn that great lesson through great acts of salvation. So what do these plagues have to do with us, right? Ten plagues that light up the land, that judge those who will not repent, that show mercy to whom God shows mercy. What do these plagues have to do with us? What are we supposed to learn from it? I want to give you two things quickly, and then we'll be done. First, we're supposed to learn exactly what they learned, that there is the Lord and there is no other. The plagues are incredibly exclusivistic, right? They are incredibly to show that there is one Lord and there is no other, and we're to learn the same lesson. It's a very inclusive message in that all that are willing to come to that Lord are welcome, but there is only one Lord to come to, right? It's a very inclusive message. All the earth, of all peoples, of all men, all genders, all tribes, everyone who will come to the Lord are welcome, but there is only one Lord to come to. We're supposed to learn the same lesson they learned, that there is one Lord and there is no other. And we're supposed to learn that even among the gods of our lives, you would say, listen, I have no idols. I have no false gods. And yet, while we have no small idols in our house, we have huge idols in our heart. And it's to these idols that we're allowing the word of God to assault like plagues and say, destroy every God in my heart, in my life, till there is none other but you. Go to war against every false God in my life till there is no other God but one in my heart. When we were naming our son, Micah, I'll give you two seconds on that. We had a name. We actually loved the name Noah until like two days before our son was born, we were set on Noah. And then I was reading Isaiah and literally Shino had a false alarm. So we were in the hospital. We were thinking we might have the baby. And so I said, what about a different name? So she said, what, where did that come from? So I had to explain. I was reading through Isaiah. I think it's chapter 40 or 43. And in it, it talks about idolatry among God's people. And God's trying to show his people how ridiculous and foolish it is. He says, listen, some of you, you'll take a piece of wood, you'll cut it in half. With half of it, you'll make a God and you'll worship it. And half of it, you'll throw in the fire and bake bread over it. How do you not see that with half you just bake bread and the other half you're taking and bowing down and saying, you're my God, save me, rescue me. And he's telling Isaiah and telling the people of Israel, don't you know there is no other Lord but me? Who is like the Lord? There is no one. There is no one. And I felt like for my family and my home, I was cut by that. And thinking through all the other false gods I kept running to and saying to these gods, save me, comfort me, deliver me, give me meaning, give me salvation, when the Lord was there all the while. You may not have small idols in your homes, little statues. You have huge idols in your heart. You're bored, so you turn to food. You're lonely, so you turn to pornography. You're tired, so you turn to TV. And through all these things, maybe none of them are sinful in their own, but you run to them as though they are means of salvation to you. When all the while God is saying, who is like the Lord? Don't you know that everything your heart longs for, you already have in Jesus. 
the comfort you want, the security that you want, the peace that you want, the satisfaction you want, the joy you want. All of that is available to you in Jesus, but you keep running after little gods. Who is like the Lord? And that's what Micah means. Mikayah. And we talked about hallelujah, the name of the Lord snuck in there. Mikayah is who is like Yahweh. And the answer of the book of Micah is no one. There's no one. The first thing the plagues are supposed to teach us is who is like the Lord? No one. There is no God but the Lord. And if your heart is filled with a pantheon of little gods, ask God to assault them till he destroys them and the competition is over. And in your heart there resides now one God and one God only. And it's for your good. These little gods are ruling over you and God wants to set you free like the people of Israel so that you might worship the Lord and be freed in him. But the plagues are also about one more thing. What are we supposed to learn from these plagues? Essentially, what's going on in these plagues? What, what is this? Essentially, what the plagues are is sort of a reversal of creation, right? The order that God had brought about is now suddenly being reversed. We said all throughout Exodus, there's language that the reader who knows Genesis picks up and says, this is a lot like the first story because Moses wrote Genesis, Moses then wrote Exodus. And so there's words, there's themes that's supposed to bring you back to Genesis. And so there's language throughout 7 through 11 in these plagues that are supposed to remind you of creation, almost as if God is undoing creation, almost as if he's reversing creation, almost as if he's decreating through these plagues. In Genesis 1, it's, it's in the beginning was God and the earth was formless and void or uninhabitable and uninhabited. And God, over the darkness of the waters, over that chaos, brings about order. Through the plagues, he's bringing about disorder, right? And through the plagues, everything is sort of being turned on its head. In Genesis 1, you have swarms of animals that are created, and over it, God says, it is good. But now, in Genesis 8, verse 3, and others, swarms are being sent to destroy man. The animal kingdom was given in Genesis 1, and man was to exercise dominion over it. Now, there's this reversal so that the animal kingdom has turned on man and is exercising dominion over man. Suddenly, everything is sort of turned on its head. There's this reversal. Water, which was to bring forth life, is now a symbol of death. Sun, which was supposed to light up the sky, is now bringing forth darkness. The six days culminate with on the last day, man is created. The plagues culminate with on the last one, man is destroyed. There's this great reversal. There's this decreation, okay? And yet, through decreation, God is bringing forth a new creation. God is willing to destroy even his own creation so that through it a new creation might come. Because out of these plagues, while judgment is falling, salvation is rising. While judgment is being hurled down, a people are being saved. A people are being born. A new people who never were are being created. A new humanity, a new people, so that out of these plagues will come forth Israel, 
a people that were never a nation, but out of this will become a nation, a people unto God, so that in Exodus 19, he will call them his treasured possession. God is willing to bring about this destruction so that through it, new creation can come. And whenever salvation is spoken of, it's spoken of in terms of new creation, like he's doing Genesis all over again. But to bring about this new creation will require this judgment and decreation. How does that relate to us? Friends, this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that God essentially allowed Jesus to be decreated so that through it we might become a new people unto the Lord. We might be created as a new humanity. That's what he calls the church, a new people. He might bring forth a people who never were, but do it by allowing Jesus to be plagued for us. On the cross, Jesus becomes the enemy of God. And it's upon Jesus that God hurls the full might of his anger and fury and wrath. And all of the power of God's wrath, you see 10 of them displayed in Egypt, well, all the wrath that God had stored for all history is unleashed on Jesus Christ. Into his body is poured the plague of our sin so that through Jesus, there might be a new creation. And that's what you see Jesus came to do. While he was on the earth, don't you see Jesus having these great acts over creation, restoring things, not decreating them, but recreating them. Blind men see. Deaf men hear. Dead men are raised to life. Bland water is turned into wine. Some loaves of bread and fish are multiplied to feed everyone. Jesus comes and he has recreative power. He's going to make all things new. He's going to restore things. He's going to take bland water and make them sweet wine for everyone. But in order for all of that to happen, he will have to be decreated for us. For us to enjoy his restoring of all things, making all things new, a new creation, he will have to be destroyed. God is willing to destroy Jesus so that we might know his salvation. Or say it like this, Jesus came to know the Lord in judgment so that we might come to know the Lord in mercy, right? Jesus came, Jesus stood in the place of Egypt. Unrepentant, rebellious Pharaoh got the plagues. He got what he deserved. Jesus is willing to become the new Egypt for us and take upon himself God in judgment so that we could know God in salvation. The full fury of God's anger and wrath and hatred for sin poured on Jesus so that mercy and grace and salvation might be extended to us. And because of his work, a new humanity is born. That's what the church is. That's why the New Testament will say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But that new creation required the judgment on Jesus. And because of that, because we're a new creation, that's what we talk about when we say mission. 
as a word of application to you. This is what God is inviting you to participate in. He's redeeming all things. He was restoring all things. He's making all things new. And so you, his new humanity, are called to participate with Jesus in seeing that happen in your world. In our city, in your neighbor's lives, in, in around the world, where there is death, you are to bring forth life. Where there is blindness, you are to work for sight. Where there is deafness, you are to work for hearing. Where there is sorrow, you are to work for joy. Where there is slavery, you are to work for freedom. Where there is oppression, you are to work for liberty. Where lives are as bland as water, you are to work to see them become sweet as wine. He's made something new of you, and he's called you to participate with him in making all things new. You leave from this place not just saying, thank you, Lord, for making me a new creation, but saying, thank you, Lord, for making me a new creation, and help me now to participate in you making all things new, in restoring all things, so the blandness of water might be everywhere turned into sweet, sweet wine. By these plagues, all human beings are to know the Lord. And even today, you will know the Lord either in judgment, or you will know the Lord in salvation. But I want to extend to you, Jesus knew the Lord in judgment for you, so that if you'll turn to him, if you'll hide in him, you will know the Lord in his salvation. Let's pray.